Hi, I'm Andi Lemasugu, and welcome to African Tech Roundup's seven-part mini-series exploring the progress that's being made in creating jobs and backing entrepreneurship in vulnerable regions of Africa and the Middle East. Now, I do hope you'll join me as we uncover pragmatic first-hand insights about what it takes to build futures in difficult places by deploying market-relevant approaches to entrepreneurship, economic policy design and implementation, education interventions, and, of course, the provision of business support. Many thanks to Spark for being the presenting partner of this mini-series. Spark is a Dutch NGO that's creating jobs for young people in fragile regions of North and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East by boosting entrepreneurship, employability, and higher education. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating, visit spark.ngo. That's spark.ngo. This podcast features a relaxed diary session with the co-founder of a South Sudanese microfinance and cross-border remittance company, which serves South Sudanese refugees in Uganda, as well as rural and peri-urban residents in his fragile home country. My guest holds degrees in agriculture and development studies specializing in microfinance and has over 20 years of professional experience gained in post-conflict environments. And so you'll no doubt find that this conversation will casually address some of the oversimplifications related to promoting financial inclusion in post-conflict environments, whilst offering useful insights into how real people with real lives won't give up on building futures for themselves and others in South Sudan, and do so even as I speak. This podcast series, which was taped at the fringes of Spark's seventh annual Ignite Conference in Amsterdam, is an independent African Tech Rounder production. And thus, the opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting sponsor, Spark. Enjoy. My name is Yengilo Kule. I'm from South Sudan and the CEO of a microfinance institution called Rural Finance Initiative, or RUFI in short. RUFI has basically been operating in South Sudan since 2008, and recently in 2017 we expanded our operations into Uganda, where we basically do finance for refugees. While in South Sudan, we basically do the local communities as well as returnees and IDPs affected by the conflict. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Yengi. Thank you very much. I asked you a question before we jumped on the mic. I'll ask it again. You're flying from uh, the Netherlands soon into Kenya, and then you're catching another flight back to South Sudan. Uh, I asked you a question. I said, oh, is it, a, is, it a, is it a large plane or a big plane? And you told me? Yeah, it's a large plane. Basically, we have the Boeings and some Bombardiers, but basically it's a, it's a large plane. There are a lot of people going from Kenya, and then also you find others flying to, from Uganda. So, and it's a regular flight. It's not just one flight that uh, comes in a while. Every day we have flights going to South Sudan. It begs the question, what's happening? What's the state of play right now? And what are people flying into South Sudan to do on such a, you know, a regular basis? Well, for one, of course, South Sudan being a post-conflict and at times still conflict environment, we find now that sometimes we have a lot of NGO staff who are moving, for example, from Kenya into South Sudan. But we also have business people because let's accept the fact. In reality, of course, there is conflict, but where there is conflict, there is also business. So 
business people can get in and see an opportunity that they can use to do business and you find them flying in so you find yes the private sector going in and also the ngos going in all of them of course finding a niche of business to be doing in south sudan describe the business environment for people who have zero context here and try and help them understand what's the business environment in south sudan is like right now is an environment which has some um, sort of instability because right now there's no permanent peace or ceasefire signed between the government and the rebels so you find now that that affects the environment in terms of peace but then we also have a challenge of the stability of the south sudan is pound because it's not doing well against the foreign currencies so those are some areas that investors try to look at do we have peace and is the is the is the currency stable but how big is the population the last time the population census was was done it was 12.7 million a country i think four times the size of rwanda for example but then most of the populations of the people because of the conflict they have moved to some of the major towns so you can fly over south sudan and you realize that most of the areas are really uninhabited juba for example people say estimated to be having about almost 2 million people but those are estimates because right now we don't have real concrete data about that and that's actually where the business is because if you have about 2 million people in one area services are needed so you find now that a lot of the business people go in and do business based on the major towns within juba for example bor yambio malakal torit rumbek these are some of the major towns that you find most of the business people try to go and do business in Let's talk a day in the life of an everyday dweller in Juba for example. What does that person do when they get up? Uh what do they wear? What do they do with their spare money? Where do they earn it? What kind of work do they do? Right now because of the conflict and the instability of the currency, most people actually tend to do a lot of work especially in the market with consumer goods because everybody wants to eat. So you find out that business people are doing that type of business whereby there's something to sell in the market especially food items you find there's a lot of activity going on there so the average person for example the one we deal with wakes up in the morning and then if this is a business person of course the first thing is to make sure that they have the the goods that they can be selling on that day and then run the business operations throughout the the day usually is around uh, maybe let's say 5 or 6 east african time that you find out that everybody needs to be able to to retire home the the conflict and the value of the currency has made families to make sure that they pull resources so how would the husband for example would go to work and then the wife has to make sure that she's in the market trying to make sure that there's something that can be used to put food on the table because at times salaries could delay so there's no guarantee that 
the salary will be enough. And because of the inflation, actually, by the time they get it, it it's, it's already eroded in value. That's why you find now that families now make sure that at least they pull resources so that somebody has regular income or daily income, actually, to support the family. Well, the one of the husband or the wife or the other way around, when it comes in, it can now meet other monthly expenses for those who are renting or whatever. Maybe one of the good things for, for the local people there is because most of them have a piece of land. So you find out that they don't have uh, expenses in terms of rent, which would have actually made things worse. So the issue right now comes really when they just have to put food on the table and then maybe on a quarterly basis trying to see that they meet the needs for especially school fees. But otherwise, in terms of rent, most of the local people have their own piece of land where they have put up something. You've used the term market. Are you referring to an open-air situation, an informal market? Are you talking about street selling? Are you talking about brick and mortar? No, it's, it's both. We, we have the brick and mortar, but of course, you also have the free market. We, we have even the hawkers who are also moving around there. So when I'm talking about the market, I'm talking about the selling and buying in whatever forms that are happening around the town. When I say business person within the context of South Sudan, or Juba specifically, is the first person who comes to mind a sort of sole trader hawking on the side of the road? Is it an individual who owns a small supermarket uh, in a brick-and-mortar situation? Is it someone in a, an open-air or even council-designated marketplace where fruits and vegetables are sold? Is it a taxi driver? Is it a domestic helper? Who comes to mind when I say business person in, in Juba? Is the rest you have mentioned, apart from the supermarket or whatever owner, most of the supermarkets are owned by, by foreigners who have the resources to be able to make sure that they get the dollars to bring in the goods. And the wholesalers we also have business people coming from Kenya and from Sudan who are also doing that business and in Ethiopia. I think they are well connected and they can get the resources. But the average business person is the one who has a small kiosk selling food items or consumer goods within the market, either hawking or selling in the market designated areas. At times there's open space where they come in and sell during the day and when you come in during the night you find it's just an open space. So that's the average business person that I'm talking about. And by your estimation, is there positive business sentiment? Are people generally optimistic about getting up in the morning thinking, you know, today will be a good day, things are going to get better. We don't have the ideal sort of political ceasefire situation in place, but I'm hopeful things will get better, or is it the opposite? Well, people are really hanging on to hope. And first of all, the reality is everybody knows whatever it is, they still need to survive. So priority goes to make sure that when I wake up, I have to make sure there's something that will put food on the table. And then, of course, as the discussion for the peace go on, then everybody has that hope that something tangible will happen. We know that the next time the ceasefire is being agreed on is going to be around February. So the hope has again been pushed to February, hoping that the antagonistic sides will, will finally come to terms and start building the peace. But without the hope, I think people would have given up. But right now, they, they still have that hope that uh, 
the two sides will understand each other and in the meantime let's put food on the table it's actually now survival because you cannot plan beyond surviving thinking about development or whatever that's still a long way from now what do you wish the organizations who are flying their staff in and out of the country would understand about the psyche of the everyday south sudanese individual and i say that assuming that you might have observed gaps and in insights around how to be of assistance in a place that is clearly fragile there's a lot that actually could be done from the institutions or the ngos that go in there uh, right now as we talk there's a problem of floods in some parts of south sudan so we know a lot of them have gone to those areas to try to to help them but then we also have some developmental organizations that would try to look at building the resilience of the people of south sudan as they try to come out of of that conflict and maybe we even we talk about the infrastructure although that's a very long and expensive thing the infrastructure within the country still still needs a lot of work but for me really if if somebody is looking at trying to help the common south sudanese is trying to build the resilience of these people not just trying to give aid all the time try to build resilience into the programs that they are doing so that come february god willing and peace is signed then we see that these people are able to regain hope in building their country so that they can participate in this development other than just trying to make sure that they survive day to day so let's talk about rufi and how you came to determine it was needed and also what continues to shape your vision and your mission as an organization Well Rufi started in 2008 as I said when the peace was signed and everybody was enthusiastic trying to participate in the development of the country so around that time five entrepreneurs came up and put in their resources to start the institution and we started very well by 2013 we already had four branches but unfortunately that's when the first conflict broke out and by 2016 we were forced to close three branches were these all in south sudan or south sudan all those were in south sudan it was really a very disappointing period because i think we lost not less than 300,000 us dollars at that time both because of inflation and because most of our clients had gone to call to to refuge and that's when we sat with the board and said what do we do do we close the institution or do we keep it going and the idea finally came in that let's follow up our clients into Uganda and see whether we can provide them also with financial services in such a setting so i i, I traveled to Uganda and uh, followed up a board registration it was not that difficult and by february 2017 we had set up our branch Of course it was a bit apprehensive because I mean if you talk to financial institutions providing financial services to refugees is not something that everybody wants to do with the fear that 
they could just leave that country and go to another one or because they don't have securities to secure the loan, so most likely they may default and there's nothing much you can do. But we had that advantage that the refugees we are dealing with, some of them were our clients, and most of them we understood where they are coming from. So they knew us in South Sudan. We knew them from South Sudan. So sort of there was a link and there was understanding between us. And frankly, when we started, we were a bit apprehensive. But just after six months, we realized that it was a market niche that was really in need of service. And we had to mobilize resources very fast to make sure we meet this, this market niche. So from 2017 up to now, we have been working with the refugees. And right now, actually, a lot of financial institutions begin to realize that you can serve the refugee and they pay even as well as the local person. So we're still maintaining that and by also maintaining our activities in, in, in South Sudan because all of us have hope that one day peace will come and definitely the people will need financial services. So right now we are maintaining our operations in the main town, providing the common businessmen I've been talking about with the financial services, especially loans in such an environment. And then the advantage you realized of working in two countries is that there's always a linkage because they come from South Sudan, they are in Uganda, so it's very easy for us to even use a collateral that they have in South Sudan for them to secure loans in Uganda. And there are also families along the way who want to send money from South Sudan into Uganda to their relatives in the refugee settlements. So apparently, even before, again, what we had not planned for is something that we realized is happening. We are becoming a very good link for families and refugees and for other relatives who are back in, uh, in the country in uh, South Sudan. You're essentially a, re a remittance service now. Yeah, exactly. We are a, a remittance service, especially from Juba to one of the settlements in a place called Parorinya. We, we, that service have really been very, very, very much appreciated by the refugees. And even the business people, because some business people want to buy certain goods from South Sudan, which are not there in Uganda. So they can easily remit their money from uh, our settlement and then withdraw it from, from South Sudan. So they, are, they have really found it a very important service. I'm curious to know what gap existed that allowed you to come up with this idea. Was there not a formal banking infrastructure that was serving the people? And if, and if it was there, why wasn't it serving the client base you currently serve? In Uganda or in South Sudan? In South Sudan. So when you first launched in South Sudan, what was the state of banking infrastructure and... Uh, to what extent was it making uh, lending available to, I suppose, uh, business people? Well, w when we started in 2008, there was basically the very few. Okay, we had some banks, and most of these banks were, were foreign banks. And of course, they were just stationed in the town of Juba. So you find out that if you go to some of the outskirts or rural settings, there were no financial service providers. And that's why we found out that it was necessary. Then there were about two financials at the microfinance level that were also operating in South Sudan. But also we realized they were just within the town. But the services that we started, we took them to the outskirts. 
we started in a place called Kajukeji, which was about uh, two hours drive from Juba. And the, the people appreciated it because it was something that they had never expected coming in. And of course, we realized people needed it because everybody was enthusiastic about building the development or developing the country. So some of them needed money to be able to, to do that. And they found that our service of trying to provide loans at that time was, was ready. The truth is most of them had never borrowed before. So it also involved us trying to do some bit of financial literacy for them to understand lending and times about security and all that. But ultimately it picked up. And actually it's because of that, the effort we put in, that's why when we came to Uganda, they understood that we have really tried to help them. And <laughs> frankly, we, when we came in, they, some of them asked us, why didn't you just, what is it that drives you? You have made losses in South Sudan, and you're again following trying to come and provide services in, in Uganda. So people didn't understand, but we have a calling, which is like a, <clears throat> a social calling because we realized there was also a niche in Uganda that was underserved. So it was basically trying to be part of the team that is building the country that really drove these five entrepreneurs to start and grow the company. Moving into Uganda was sort of like a desperate move because you've lost a lot of money, but you said, okay, let's also throw some money there and see what comes out, but surprisingly, as we talk now, it's doing well in, in Uganda. That was going to be my next question. My next question is, clearly, have you recovered from that loss, and are there limits to your altruistic intent here? To what extent is this a, is this a calculated um, for-profit entity, and to what extent are you perhaps willing to sustain further losses in the name of... <laughs> Of supporting your people. <laughs> no, I don't think we are not we are not ready to sustain more losses. That's why we we actually right now as I talk, we, we decided to maintain operations in Uganda in South Sudan at only two branches. We don't intend to expand or reopen those branches we closed until we see that there's permanent peace and then the South Sudanese pound has really gained some value or is a bit stable against the foreign currency. While in Uganda, of course, there is peace, and then the, the Ugandan shilling is really stable against the, the local, I mean, the foreign currency. So there's a very big chance of expanding, because even now, in both countries, we are sustainable. Yes, in Uganda, I know we are doing better now. We have four branches. We have three branches. We are opening the fourth in February. So we have a high hope that... Uh, profitability aspects, much as again we are dealing with refugees and also some host communities, is much more high in Uganda at the moment than in South Sudan. So, is profitability in sight? No, it's in sight. It's in sight. And also, how many people do you serve? Well, right now, in Uganda, we have uh, 2,350 clients that we, we are working with. And uh, about 75% of these are, are refugees. And then we have host communities. We're not entirely targeting refugees, but because we work mostly in the settlements, then you find out that a lot of our work is also going towards serving, serving refugees. Then in South Sudan, we have about 1,800 because most of the people moved out of the country. So 
as we said south sudan we are moving cautiously we don't want to have our fingers burnt for the second time so really the strategy there is to make sure the operations are continuing and then until final peace comes in that's when we have the chance now to expand and reopen the other branches that were were closed the strategy is also to make sure that when the refugees go back they they can continue with the services that they have been getting from Uganda because when they come back they'll find us there and then we'll be able to continue to to provide them with the services other than again them losing the services that they have been getting and then taking them back to zero so we are trying to place that cross border strategies to make sure that we provide the same services once they go back we're taking a quick breather to tell you a little more about spark the presenting sponsor of the series spark is a dutch ngo with a difference since being founded by two dutch students a little over 25 years ago The organization has grown to deliver expert job creation services in 14 of the world's most conflict-affected regions including Libya, Palestine, and South Sudan. Spark creates job opportunities for young people by providing higher education scholarships, facilitating internship placement, supporting the creation of new business ventures, and helping entrepreneurs expand existing ones. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating, visit spark.ngo. That's spark.ngo. There are people who live in countries that host uh, large refugee populations that are listening to this uh, and they they probably have a hard time even grasping the notion that refugee populations in a host country might be served with with financial services in the way you're doing. Can you share what the status is as far as being a South Sudanese refugee living in Uganda and what sets them up for accessing facilities like the ones you provide the refugee financial landscape is is still new and uh, there's still a lot of apprehension about really serving the refugees the good thing in Uganda is the landscape the one set up by the government is really welcoming for refugees they are allowed to be employed they can set up businesses and there's free movement so in business of course you need this it becomes a bit easy for us also to be able to deal with them but that's not the case with other financial institutions because when we discuss with them they still have the flight risk fear the fear that the refugees will go back to the other end so maybe for us it's a positive because we operate in both countries but the rest just have that fear that one day what happens if these refugees go back and in a lot of forums we have told them clearly that when peace comes to a country the chances that the refugees will move as one and once like when they are coming into refuge is not the case you know people have settled so they move back gradually you will find out that when peace comes it's mostly the head of the household who will go home to try to establish something for us in our area it's mostly making sure that you plant some cassava so that the family will be able to start something and then set up some structure that they can start with and then gradually they move so you find out that even if peace comes these people will take at least 5 years to be able to move holy so is that how long it takes for cassava to <laughs> to come <laughs> cassava only takes about 6 months to 1 year but of course 
one of the things that holds people to move is because South Sudan has been fighting since 1956. And then 2005, they signed peace. And then again, we had another war in 2016. So people are really apprehensive. Two, most of the households have children who are in school in Uganda. So for schools to set up in a country that has been in conflict takes time. So you find out that nobody's ready to take his kids to go and sit at home, much as we know there are some schools in, in South Sudan at the moment. So you find that gradual process, that's, that's why the process becomes gradual trying to see what holds for the peace and trying to make sure that schools are set up so that when the children go from one country to another, they are not just left at home. That's why it takes that. But setting up the household just does take a year. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I suppose um, uh, one man's risk is another man's reward. <laughs> oh, sure. So what is your growth plan? Because it sounds to me like you're building a bank. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, our board members were in Nairobi for a board governance training. And then the good thing is they had the chance to discuss with a consultant about the transformation of a microfinance institution like ours into a bank. The process is very expensive and demanding. So initially, of course, there was that excitement about doing that. And frankly, by the way, if it was not for the conflict, by now we would be in South Sudan. Because we had really moved very well and we had red foot set our footsteps. You mean you'd be a bank in South Sudan? By now we'll be a bank in South Sudan. If the conflict didn't break out in 2016. Either we're a bank or we're in the process of becoming a bank. Because the way we had spread within the local communities... The, the government got to realize that we are doing a very important job and it wouldn't have been very difficult. But on the aspects in Uganda, for example, we wouldn't aspire really to be a bank because we are divided up into tiers. So there's what we call MDI, whereby you are a microfinance deposit-taking finance institution. That's the next step. Then you become a credit institution. So we would rather go through that process before we hurry to think of becoming a bank. But in the future, 10 years from now, who doesn't want to become bigger than what he is? So we'll also welcome that opportunity. But I know that one could easily happen in South Sudan if peace was to come in because the, the demand there is, is much more higher. There are really very few financial institutions that are trying to serve the people. While in Uganda, the market is a bit congested and really competitive. Do you only serve um, entrepreneurs um, or are you, do you offer microloans for personal use as well? We, we offer everybody. Because right now we have a project, for example, funded by the Netherlands Embassy through a consortium of Coded, Agritera and Spark, which is trying to promote food security through agribusiness in South Sudan. So in that project, we are basically looking at the common man, but then trying to make sure that they start operating at the commercial level. And then we are looking at the whole value chain of agriculture. It's not necessarily about production only. So through that project, Rufi comes in as the financier. So the other ones build the capacity, training them to be able to do oh, commercial modern agriculture and then good agricultural practices. And then when the linkages to the market are created, then now Rufi can come in to be able to finance the growth of these businesses. So 
we, we really try to go all the all the areas, not necessarily looking at all the, the only the main businessmen in the market, but wherever there is a niche where we know that we can provide financial services to the common person, we we try our level best to reach that. And there's a percentage of your business that uh, serves business people relative to people taking out personal loans and things of that nature. What would you say the split is? Well, most of them are, are taking loans. But then in South Sudan, we, we also... Loans as in, in their personal, for their p- personal capacity? Yeah, for the personal business operations. Of course, we have others also who are doing like cooperatives, who are also taking us cooperatives. But then we have a service that is unique in South Sudan, which we call uh, the DFD. You know, a, a lot of banks collapse in South Sudan and people are skeptical about saving their money there. So we, we try to help them to save up for any other enterprise or saving up for any other asset that they want to build in the near future to buy in the near future. So that one is for every other person that, that, that is around there. So you find out that they save up, like now they save up for Christmas or they save us for school fees. So it has become a very attractive service that so many people have, have taken on. In South Sudan also we work with the schools because at times they want to collect school fees for the children, I mean for, for the students, so we also offer that service to, to the schools. We, we can collect the, say, the school fees from the parents and then the schools work with, with us. So we, we really try to, as much as possible, go beyond just lending so that we can also do other services to the community. Have you worked out what they, what they need the finance for? Most of it is working capital trying to inject in more money to try to grow their business. That's basically mostly what they, they, they use the, 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 the money for. At times they will also need some money for, for an asset of a business. For example, a restaurant, somebody who has a restaurant would want one money to buy another fridge. Those are basically the, the main things that they, they use the money for. How small do you go and how big do you go as far as uh, uh, lending ticket sizes? Well, our biggest loans go to the SMEs, and uh, for you to be considered an SME, you should have an average working capital of equivalent to 5,000 euros, and then employing at least five people. Because we, we believe that if you're an SME, you should also be contributing to, to the growth of the economy and whatever. So that's one. Then we have the individual people, or what we call the individual business person. Sorry, so what, what borrowing ceiling does uh, an SME have within your context? We really don't want to set a ceiling because there are some who really go, they can even reach 10,000, but then there are others who reach a level that we think as an MFI we may not be able to handle. So maybe let me talk in terms of the biggest loan that we have given as an SME, which is about 25,000 euros. And this is basically to some of the business people that we consider really set up having about 15 employees or whatever. That's, good. That's about our biggest loan. But the, At the personal loan level? The personal loan is about 1,000, averagely 800 euros. And then, of course, it could be just you and your family who are operating it. But you must have some collateral to, to secure that. Our smallest loan is the one for what we call the group loan. Because mostly these are women who are selling, for example, in the market. They're just having a stock of about 100 euros. So they need some little money to be able to, because, you know, their turnover is high of their goods, maybe daily or whatever. So they need some small money to be able to 
to, to boost up their business. So you find out that these ones, because they come in group of three to five, these such people, you can even give them individually within the group, you can give a loan of 100, dollars, 100 euros, 150 euros, 300 euros. So it varies. So what we give actually depends on the type of product that you, you qualify for. From an interest rate perspective, are you competitive as far as what else is available in the market? Um, have you had to make that a unique selling proposition? Uh, I don't know, by going higher or lower or being more flexible with terms? or How have you differentiated on that? Well, frankly, we have to be high because, like I said about inflation, inflation is eating up everything. And our strategy, of course, is to make sure we give short-term loans because if I give you a loan for two years in local currency and inflation is eroding it, what do I end up with? So what are we talking in terms of effective monthly or year-on-year yeah. year interest so rates? Again, the cost varies by product, but our average loan is 3% per month, which is 36% per annum. Somebody will say that's high, but if you look at the inflation and whatever, that's basically an average that uh, we're giving. I may not be able to compare it to the markets because, frankly, the banks are not lending. The, the banks had their fingers also banned, so no, no bank at the moment is lending in South Sudan. So you, we find now that our, our rate is, we cannot compare it with any other bank or financial institution. All the other two other financial institutions that are operating are also, also offering about the same rate. But one of them is a cooperative, which goes to about 42% per annum. So on average, actually, we may actually be the cheapest on the market. If the banks were lending, then maybe we'll say, okay. But of course, we know if the banks were lending, theirs would have been a bit on the lower end. But right now, they're not lending. And in Uganda? No, in Uganda, we are average because we carried our assessment and then we, 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 we carried that one out. 24% to 26% is the average rate that everybody is charging in Uganda. Where did you find the capital to get going? How do these five people you, you, you keep citing find each other and bring the resources to bear to get going? Initially, we started with loan capital, the injection of equity by our shareholders. But as we continue to grow... Local shareholders or...? Local shareholders. South uh, uh, Rufi is basically owned by South Sudanese and uh, now some Ugandan entrepreneurs who have also joined us. And then we have one Tanzanian also who has... So it's basically like an East African sort of owned. But the, 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 the biggest number of the shareholders is, is from South Sudan. So we initially we used that, but we realized it wasn't enough. So we started borrowing from uh, South Sudan, but right now nobody is lending us. So in South Sudan right now, we are using the pooling of resources, especially the product that I told you about whereby people save up or whatever. That has really helped us a lot. So in, in Uganda, we, we have been working in partnership with CODED since 2010. So it's been a very, very helpful partner that we have, we have worked with. And what is CODED? CODED is a, an NGO, but it also has an investment arm. So they can lend, then they can also give you capacity building funds. So we've been working with them also in areas of capacity building, and we also get loan capital from them. So they have been helping us with that. But because we are growing a lot now in Uganda, we are now trying to borrow locally. So we have partners like Centenary Bank where we are currently negotiating a facility and we know that we are getting it within this month. So 
that is the strategy we are using to make sure that we, we, we get the resources that we want to be able to, to support our growth as we prepare now to open our, our fourth branch. So our strategies try to as much as possible borrow locally, especially in Uganda, because there are so many lenders on the ground. And then with that, we should be able to intermediate those resources to meet the needs of our customers. And the NGO partnerships, uh, how does that factor into your strategy? Have you identified, I suppose, development finance as a safe, maybe reliable source of capitalizing your growth? Most of the work we do with the NGOs is especially trying to build the capacity of maybe our staff, the institution, or even the clients. Because right now, for example, the refugees... When we compare them with the South Ugandans, their financial literacy is really low. So you find out that we can negotiate with some uh, NGOs, and if they are so willing, they can fund the development, I mean the capacity building of the, of the refugees in that aspect. So basically that's how we work with them, especially on the aspects of capacity building. But when it comes to really funds for lending, that's when we go now to the market. What is the imperative as you see it to to get people financially literate is it a business imperative is it an impact imperative is this being influenced by your relationship with the ngos or do you have a a lived-in experience that um conscientizes you to the need for this because as i see it there are a lot of people quite willing and quite happily taking full advantage of the lack of financial literacy to build very, very lucrative micro-lending businesses on the African continent right now. Yeah, true. Right now, you said it correctly, the buzz is financial inclusion, but it's financial inclusion minus financial education. And, and we believe that if really the customer is financially literate, they can make informed financial decisions. And the me and you, if we, we have options of uh, other facilities on the market, we first of all dig further. What are the terms and conditions? How, what are the charges? What are the benefits? But if somebody is not financially literate, they don't ask those things. They, they just take what it is. And then they realize at the end of the day that actually they've taken on something that is too hard to, to, to manage. So we, we really not we are not really pushed by the NGOs because maybe they have the money to do financial tracing, but we believe that if our clients are financially informed and they can make financial inf- in, uh, financially informed decisions, they can become better borrowers. We have challenges of what we call multiple borrowing, whereby everybody borrows from here and then to uses this to, to pay the other one. You find now that if somebody is financially informed, they rarely go into those things because they know that ultimately you're going to fail to pay one and you can build up a pyramid that may, may, you may not be able to, to, to handle. So, so it's almost, in, in your view, a form of risk management to ensure that your client is well informed? Exactly. It's really a risk management sort of thing, put it correctly. That, that, that's, that's the strategy we are doing. And even as we talk to, to customers, they come in and you tell them interest rate is 3%. Because I, I can just say interest rate is 3%. But in the financial sense, in our level, there's what we call flat interest rate. And then 
declining. And for those who are informed, they go the next step and ask you, is that flat or is that declining? Which means they know that you may say 3%, but flat is actually more expensive than declining. So you find out that the conversation becomes very easy with somebody who is financially literate than the one who, who, who is not. So it, it helps also in the risk management when you're dealing with somebody who is financially literate than the one who is not. You must be aware of players who are clearly not as concerned with solving for this as you appear to be. What do you want them to know? What, what would you say to people who are, who are playing this game? And I think they're playing a volumes game because maybe they're leveraging technology. It's part of a platform strategy to onboard people en masse and, and sort of create a pipeline of active users. They can reliably monetize over extended periods of time with no real intention of preventing these people from going into debt cycles that they don't come out of, right? So I, I want to give you the opportunity to speak to people who don't share your, your view, who appear not to be driven by conscience, what would you say to those individuals? Uh, that maybe I think for such people, they don't have a long-term plan maybe for the institution or even for the people. It's like just trying to gather up as much profit as possible and get out of that market. But if you're really building for, for, for the future and trying to build a customer base, we always say that the customers vote with their feet. So frankly, if they find out that I offered them a service that at the end of the day it turns out that I had hidden something, they will vote with their feet and they'll never come back. So I, I think for those ones who, who do that, maybe they, they, do, they are not thinking of maintaining themselves as a going concern. Three or five years, we get what we get and we get out of the market. But like I told you, five, ten years from now, we may decide to become a bank. Surely how do I build a base when... My clients are voting with their feet and getting out of my, my walking out of my office. So I try to make sure that I build and grow with them so that in the future, when I try to become something else, they are, they, are, they, are, they are the ones who can support me. And of course, we know that when you do good for a customer, he tells other people and you will, you will definitely be able to have a walking advert going on talking about the good things. For those who really who, who don't have that plan, I think they are, they are acting like wolves because ultimately whether we like it or not, they will get the literacy that they want. And in most cases, even the illiterate one, when you cheat them, they'll definitely know that something has happened because you didn't explain to them the contract. You didn't tell them about their fees and commissions. And then you give them a loan and then it's less by something. And then they ask you and they tell them, oh, there was a fee and commission. Somebody starts saying something is wrong with this person. Why didn't you tell me at the beginning? So you find that one definitely. And I think that's one thing that makes sure, makes happen that some other institutions have more clients than the others because of the transparency that we try to put in. Finally, I want you to speak to fellow South Sudanese in the diaspora. Speak to someone who is thinking, listen to you going, man, maybe it's time I book a, a flight, <laughs> a flight home and see what, the, you know, what Yengi is talking about here. Um, is there a pathway to participation? I mean, anyone who's made it, say, to Europe or frankly, anywhere more developed on the African continent and beyond is probably in a position to contribute and probably already is in some shape or form contributing economically to South Sudan. What would you encourage people in thinking about home in this way to do? Or how would you activate their interest or channel their interest? 
I know we really have a lot of people outside there. South Sudan is there. And everyone is watching what is going to happen. I know I cannot decide for you, but the truth is we should never give up the hope for our country. You know, when most people were running to refuge, they said, I'm not going back to that country. I'm not going back to that country. But when I talk to them now, everybody's saying, can our leaders really understand the situation and we go back? Because, I mean, home is a home. So it may take time for you to think about going home, but change is inevitable. We hope that our leaders will really sit and understand and then... It's us who have to go and develop that country. I, I always look at the example of Rwanda, and you cannot believe when you go to Rwanda and you see how patriotic everybody is. I've been to Rwanda, you sit there, and everybody's talking about developing the country, developing the country, developing the country. Well, we're still outside there, but I know that in 2020, we'll definitely reach a point where we start thinking, can we go back and start building that country together? So let's maintain the hope and let's never give up. The country is ours. Whether we have lived out of it 20 years or whatever, we still belong there and we can only build it if we do it together. So maybe a flight home, spend a month or so, or a few weeks even is, is uh, not a bad idea. That's true, because we cannot rely on the news you see on CNN, BBC, or whatever. No. When you go home there, you can have a different perspective, and you can see a niche that you can try to be able to do something in. Whatever it is, you can do it from your experience or whatever. There are different ways to develop the country. And let's hope that February brings the peace we want. And then after two, six months, come in and see, as we said, two or three weeks, two or three days, it will change your perspective because we'll see how people have tried to survive and make sure that that country regains the hope that's there. Mr. Yengi Lokule, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you too for sparing the time to be and hear from the perspectives of South Sudan and development in that country.